This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Uh, I'm uh, delighted and honored to give this opening a talk about Paul Crutzen. I've had the privilege, the pleasure, and the honor of working with Paul since the late 1970s for nearly 40 years. And uh, it was a great loss for me uh, when Paul, Paul passed away. So I'm giving this talk with some mixed emotions. This is a picture we took from the cockpit of C-130. It's a huge transport aircraft. Flying, we were flying over the Indian Ocean, looking at air pollution from South Asia. Paul is clearly one of the most creative, innovative, and original geoscientists of his generation. He has generated a number of novel ideas. He has pioneered or co-pioneered some seminal ideas of how we human beings are interacting with the environment and impacting it, mostly in negative ways. First, he was one of the first to suggest that the stratospheric ozone is maintained by catalytic destruction of ozone by many reactive species. And without that, the ozone simulated by models were too much compared to the observed ozone distribution. So it was a major breakthrough. Then he moved on. And amongst uh, uh, other suggestions, uh, with other scientists independently, Paul came to the conclusion that ozone was being produced in the troposphere by pollutants through photochemical processes. The third was a genius stroke. He said nitrous oxide, which is produced by microbes in the soil, were transported all the way up to the stratosphere and uh, impacting ozone chemistry, thus linking what's happening on the surface with the upper atmosphere. Later came to be called biogeochemical cycles. His other major suggestion, which just came sheerly out of the blue, was global nuclear conflagration, conflagration from nuclear war would burn enough material to blanket the earth with a thick layer of soot, which would essentially cut off sunlight and creating darkness and also cool the planet. And suggested uh, it was a major catastrophe. Then Paul and I co-discovered this atmospheric brown clouds, which is vast layers of pollution. I'll talk to you about that. Of course, we're all here because of his suggestion of Anthropocene. I'm going to talk about that. And last, uh, he became somewhat uh, a little bit controversial for this, that he was not very hopeful we human beings would stop the climate change and global warming in time and he renewed the idea that human beings may have to engineer the climate to slow down warming. So let me talk about this atmospheric brown clouds. 
this was a, an experiment Paul and I planned where we would look at how air pollution from South Asia would get transported to the Indian Ocean and impact the chemistry and climate. Basically, during the winter time and early spring, the subcontinent, because of the Himalayan uh, mountains, would be cold, that air would sink and trap the pollutants, and the trapped pollutants would, trans would tra transport from northwest to southeast. So we wanted to just put two few instruments on a small boat and go across the Indian Ocean south of the so-called intertropical convergence zone. Pristine air would come in the north, the polluted air. We wanted to compare the two. Eventually, it grew to a major massive experiment with five aircraft, two ships and a dedicated satellite. What we discovered to our horror was this massive layer of river of pollution, brown clouds. This was just basically produced by cooking with biomass uh, emission from uh, you know, uh, cars, transport. So what we thought as a local pollution became a global problem. We later, uh, NASA discovered similar brown clouds all over the world. So what they did, the air pollution particulates from this uh, brown clouds cost 7 million deaths per year worldwide and it would also reduce the sunlight coming going into the ocean on the land surface by anywhere from 5 to 10 percent which can became called global dimming and the reduction in sunlight cut down the evaporation so the rainfall would decrease drought and then the soot particles in the brown cloud would get transported to the Himalayan region and other glaciers and the Arctic sea ice and would melt them. So it became a major catastrophic event happening. This whole experiment was done between 1998 to 2001. It's in the middle of this. Paul came up with this idea of the Anthropocene in the year 2000 and he published a paper in Nature in 2002 and, and, and basically, I'll tell you what, what he suggested, but read that uh, abstract uh, I copied there. It basically says the Anthropocene could be said to have started in the late 18th century. And he gives as example the increase in the greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide and methane. So climate change was very much in his mind. So this was the original paper in 2000, that human beings have become a geologic force transforming the entire uh, planet. And in my view, climate change is an icon for the planetary scale impact. Let me just uh, brief you on that part. To understand climate change, I want to put it in a larger context. Astronomers call the Earth is in a Goldilocks zone, just at the right perfect temperature. So that water could exist as a liquid, solid, and a vapor. And what astronomers said is that they were the perfect distance from the sun in the so-called habitable zone. 
So earth could get neither hot nor cold. So let me give you an example of how delicate that balance is. Earth is about 93 million miles away from the sun. If had it been 2 million miles closer at 91 million miles, it would have been too hot. If it had been 2 million miles away at 95 million miles, it would have been ice cold. So that's how delicately balanced the planet's climate is. So let's see what we are doing to this. And let's try to get into Paul's mind and think about the Anthropocene. So this just shows you evolution of human beings. So about 160,000 years ago to about 10,000 years ago, they were basically hunter-gatherers. The Earth was in an ice age at 20,000 years ago and got out of it into what we call Holocene about 11,500 years ago. Holocene is probably the warmest climate we have experienced in the last 50 to 60,000 years. So that brought predictable climate so farmers could expect when the rain will come and plant their seeds and led to agriculture revolution during the Holocene period, then about 1800 AD, the Industrial Revolution started, right? The, uh, the invention of the steam engine and the use of coal. And Paul said that's what ushered in the Anthropocene, Industrial Revolution. We are still arguing about when exactly the Anthropocene started. We are not, we are not doubting the fact that human beings have become a, a geologic force. There is a group led by uh, Professor Will Steppen, who said Anthropocene started around 1950, right after World War II, when there was an acceleration of consumption of natural resources. So he showed population, our energy use, water use, etc. And you see that inflection point in 1950 when things took off. So for him, that great acceleration of consumption of resources happened around 1950. So he puts the period of the Anthropocene post-1950 and look at the carbon dioxide concentration. It started increasing around 1800 itself. Uh, that's what motivated Paul to put 1800 as the date of the Anthropocene. And right now, the carbon dioxide concentration has far, gone far beyond. It's around 420 parts per million. So how much CO2 is really in the air? You see, since about 1750, we have dumped about 2.2 trillion tons of carbon dioxide. Imagine that. About half of that, close to 1 trillion tons, is still up there and the thin shell of what we call atmosphere. That's a trillion ton blanket covering every part of the planet, trapping the infrared heat from the earth and the atmosphere and warming the planet, okay? It's just not CO2. There are many other greenhouse gases we are dumping, chlorofluorocarbons, etc. Is the planet responding to this? So this is the temperature record starting from the 
shown for the last 2000 years, extending up to now 2020, this was a report released by the United Nations, the planet crossed a degree warming around 2015. And that's unprecedented warming, that one degree for the last 2000 years. In fact, if you look at a century scale period, the warming we have seen in the last century is more than anything we have seen in the last 100,000 years. And we know now that that warming is caused by human activities. So that's to me is the convincing evidence that we have become a geologic force. Unfortunately, in the last five years, meteorologists have uh, demonstrated that that warming, the change in the mean climate, has led to numerous weather extremes, extreme heat, extreme rainfall, extreme drought, fires, and the ocean warming to unprecedented levels, and also the ocean getting acidified from the absorption of CO2. My own prediction with two of my colleagues is that this was done three years ago, we are saying by 2030, we predicted the planet would cross the one and a half degree threshold. That would make it hotter than anything we have experienced in the last few hundred thousand years, if not few billion years. When that happens, I'm reasonably convinced that climate change will transition to climate disruption worldwide. All of us, 8 billion people will feel it, okay? So if you think in terms of the Goldilocks zone, the planet being at the right temperature, this is a 5% probability prediction of a model developed by Princeton University and NOAA. It shows what will happen beyond 2050 if we don't stop this inadvertent and dangerous experiment of emitting consuming fossil fuels and dumping CO2 in the air. The entire Southwest, you can see, all the way through Mexico, the entire Amazon, the entire Southern Europe, the Mediterranean region, Sub-Saharan Africa, parts of Australia, China, would be in extreme drought. So basically the Goldilocks zone would be shrinking. Having given this alarming, alarming forecast, let me talk about how, how are we going to get out of this dangerous Anthropocene. So first is we need to understand the interaction between human beings and uh, uh, the natural system. See, so far our climate models did not even have human influence. There was no way they could model that interaction. That ground is broken by many groups. And I want to just briefly mention a study we published just about a couple of months ago. On the left-hand side, you see the SSM is a social system model. On the right-hand side is a natural system model. And what we learned, the model is such that all you have to feed it is the global GDP. It simulates everything temperature, CO2, how much renewables, how much uh, fossil fuels, etc., etc. 
What we found is that there is a 50-year lag, inertia, between the time scientists warned the society and ultimately the warming curve is bending. That 50-year lag is the response time it takes for society to respond to science, the time it takes the policymakers to respond to societal concern, the time it takes for technology to be developed, and then that technology be diffused, adding on to the time constant of the ocean atmosphere system. It takes decades. So what we conclude is that solving the climate change problem would depend on we shrinking that response time from 50 years to about 20 years. Fortunately, there is still time to do that, okay? So I want to conclude with the Anthropocene. If climate change was the only thing that is symbolic of Anthropocene, probably it would be an easier problem. The fundamental issue is that climate change crisis is embedded with multiple environmental crises. So this is part of a major study I was involved in. The inner circle is the habitable zone. The yellow is when we, when we left the habitable zone. And then the outer circle is we are in the pure no man's territory, okay, the red zone. So in terms of biodiversity, species destruction, converting the planet working land into monoculture, we are already in the red zone. And in the natural cycles of nitrogen and phosphorus, major nutrient for species and us, again, we have perturbed that cycle all the way into the red zone. I don't have time to go into all the different things. So we have to think about the climate crisis in the context of other destruction of natural resources. So the climate is still in the yellow zone. But remember, I told you they're going to reach one and a half degrees in eight years. That's 2030. Once you pass the two degrees, we all know we're going into unstable regime with multiple tipping points. We could even lose control. But I'm optimistic that we will transition to a habitable Anthropocene by about 2030 to 40, somewhere during that. And we would have figured out to limit the warming to two degrees, not by geoengineering, but by transitioning to cleaner fuels, solar, wind, etc., etc. But that will require fundamental change in societal attitude towards nature. We would have provided clean energy access for all, including the poorest 3 billion. And hopefully the society and the ecosystem would become resilient to such shocks. I think that's the world Paul was dreaming about when he coined the phrase Anthropocene. Thank you very much. I'm really happy to be here today to be able to talk to you about the oceans and the Anthropocene. 
Now, we used to think the ocean was so big that it was too big to harm. And this this wonderful quote from Thomas Huxley uh, in the 19th century, when he says, probably all the great sea fisheries are inexhaustible. That is to say that nothing we do seriously affects the number of fish. Now, of course, we all know that that's not correct. And I actually learned that lesson quite early on uh, in the beginning of my graduate research, where I was working on the north coast of Jamaica. And here you see on the left a picture that I took as a grad student really shortly after I got to Jamaica. And you can see these beautiful coral reefs, but there were no fishes in the picture. And that was pretty typical of the situation then. And then you see another picture taken um, 10 years later when the corals themselves are also gone. So this was a very abrupt way of learning that coral reefs uh, were fragile ecosystems. And of course, the bad news has kept on coming uh, throughout the course of my career, and it's not just coral reefs. Here you see a series of titles just from the last year, a couple of years from Nature and Science about declining oxygen levels and uh, productivity declines, the great vulnerability of marine ecosystems uh, and organisms compared to those on land, uh, the also the role of organized crime uh, threatening an ocean economy and a huge amount of plastic waste, which right now we're not successfully uh, doing anything about, and even a half a century of the decline in sharks and rays. So, and this is just what I could fit on one screen. And I could, of course, give a whole talk uh, on just these topics or any one of them for that matter. Now, the problems are real and they are big, but one of the things I learned, uh, particularly teaching to graduate students at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography, was that if you present problems without solutions, can actually lead to apathy rather than action. And of course, what we want is action about these problems. And so as a result, uh, about 2007 or so, I started thinking about different ways of talking about the ocean. I used to be uh, so depressing that uh, I was actually, uh, my husband and I were referred to as Dr. Stoom and Gloom on the lecture ser series. And so this took quite a retooling of my uh, presentations, but I eventually began starting a series of symposia called Beyond the Obituaries on Success Stories in Ocean Conservation. I started with some others, a Twitter campaign called Hashtag Ocean Optimism. And then this has even led to a, a whole series of summits sponsored by the Smithsonian uh, called the Earth Optimism Summits. So what I'd like to do today is uh, tell you a little bit about uh, some of the successes we have had in ocean conservation. I think you all know the problems, um, but many of these solutions and successes are much less uh, well-known, and that's why I want to focus on them. So the first topic I'd like to turn to is uh, preventing extinction. Now, there are a number of marine organisms that have, uh, particularly through hunting, been uh, pushed to the brink of extinction. Some actually have gone extinct, but a number of species we've managed to save. And sea turtles are actually one of the notable examples of success, at least some of the populations and species. So what you see here on the map are the 17 populations of sea turtles, and the green circles are those that are populations that are increasing. And as you can see from the charts on the right, in some cases, these increases have been really dramatic from almost nothing to thousands and thousands of individuals. And so sea turtles are a really good example uh, when people put their mind to it and uh, take conservation action, protecting beaches from nest uh, uh, raiders and also working to prevent entanglement, uh, it's actually possible to turn things around and really make a difference. The second thing that we've been pretty good at doing is protecting ocean spaces. And they come in all sorts of shapes and sizes and forms. 
Some of the ones that we've protected are enormous, and typically these really big ones are far away from human populations. And a really nice example is the Ross Sea in Antarctica, one of the largest, if not the largest, of all marine protected areas. But th- some of them are actually quite small and uh, near to us. This is a shot that I took uh, in Hong Kong of the Mai Po Park. And this is nestled between Hong Kong and uh, Shenzhen, nearly 20 million peoples, and yet it ha- is an important protecting space for a lot of uh, seabirds that come to roost and uh, rest there. We've also gotten better at fishing sustainably, fishing wisely. Uh, there are a couple of different ways this has occurred. One big method we've used is to change the economic incentives so it makes it more likely that fishing is done with a a view to the long-term sustainability rather than short-term profits. One of those mechanisms is called uh, individual tradable quotas or ITQs. You see them plotted out in a map and a study was done now a while ago. But what that study showed was that the uh, having these tradable quotas uh, where people could fish a certain amount and then actually could sell those quotas to others if they wanted to reduce the possibility of uh, fisheries collapse by about 50%. And just the other uh, month, a new study was uh, released showing how to reduce bycatch. This is a big problem. You get a lot of unwanted things in fishing nets, including seabirds and, as I mentioned, sea turtles. And it turns out these lighted nets uh, can reduce uh, the biomass of uh, bycatch by over 60%. So this is a big advantage and hopefully will be implemented on a, a large scale in the near future. Finally, we've gotten pretty good at replanting a foundation species. In this case, what you see is the seagrasses, which are very important ecosystems on many coastlines around the world, but it's also the case for oysters and mangroves and other uh, marine creatures that really create the foundation of the ecosystem. In this particular case, a relatively recent study, over 70 million seeds of uh, seagrass were planted, resulting in the expansion of uh, 9,000 new acres of seagrass. And not only have the seagrass recovered, as you see in the chart on the left, uh, we see the line heading up toward the top of the chart, that black line, but it's also resulted in uh, quite a few ecosystem services improving as well. Those are the things that ecosystems do for us uh, basically for free. So carbon and nitrogen are being better stored in the sediments and invertebrate biomass and fish biomass are increasing dramatically as a result of the rebound in these uh, seagrass uh, plantations. We've also gotten uh, uh, much better at reducing pollution. Of course, this some of this started early on, uh, particularly with the work of Rachel Carson, who pointed to pesticides as a terrible problem, particularly for birds, including seabirds. And the result of the banning of uh, DDT about 10 years after her book was published in the United States in 1972 has resulted in the dramatic recovery of ospreys and pelicans and, and many other birds of prey. And then in the case of Tampa Bay, which you see on the right, the reduction of nutrient pollution has resulted in a dramatic increase in the amount of seagrasses there without even planting any seagrasses, as in the previous example, uh, really back to 1950s levels. And so that constitutes a really big success by, by all definitions. And then we've also good at removing some of the things that really didn't belong in the environment. And I show here two examples that which may puzzle you at first because they're not from the ocean. Talking, I'm talking about here about removing dams from freshwater streams and removing rats from oceanic islands. It turns out removing dams is really important because those dams block the passage of fish who spend part of their lives in the ocean and part uh, in freshwater to breed. And the re- 
reduction of dams, for example, near where I live in Brooksville, Maine, has resulted in a dramatic increase in the number of alewives. And those alewives are important food uh, fish for things like bald eagles and striped bass. And on the image on the right, what you see is South Georgia Island, uh, where rats have been completely eradicated. This is an island not too far from Antarctica, resulting in a dramatic rebound in seabird populations because rats are very good at eating uh, uh, seabird eggs and uh, young chicks. So to summarize uh, where we stand right now, this is a recent review published by Duarte et al. in uh, 2020. This is a, a summary of where we are in terms of species protection and management. And so what you see for fish stocks on the left is that all those blue places are increasing and uh, the red places are declining and the beige is no change. Now we need more blue and less red and beige, but still it shows that there are quite a few fish stocks that are increasing around the world. And similarly, uh, on the right, you see the data for marine mammal populations. And in that case, you can see quite a bit of blue. These are populations uh, that are increasing and much, much less red. So we're doing quite well on the species protection front for marine mammals, not quite as well um, with fisheries, but progress is being made. Now, there's plenty to celebrate, of course, but plenty of work still to be done. And similarly, in the realm of ecosystem protection and restoration, what you see here on the left is the percentage of the ocean that's covered by marine protected areas or MPAs. And on the right, the amount of restoration taking place in mangroves, seagrasses, salt marshes, coral reefs, kelps, and oyster reefs. And once again, you see the trend lines are definitely going in the right direction, but the numbers are still too small and there's plenty of work still to do. Now, in terms of thinking about the future, where we're headed, as I mentioned, we've got work to do. What do we? What tools do we have in our arsenal that are really just uh, coming uh, into play that can help us in these efforts? The first I like to call the ocean data revolution. And you see here two images, one from the Global Fishing Watch, which tracks all fishing effort around the world by satellite data. And then on the right, you see the tagging of Pacific Predators program, which involves lots of different organisms that have uh, tagging uh, devices attached to them. And so we can see both where all the fishing is going on and also where these organisms are traveling. And those two sets of data together can greatly reduce the conflicts between these organisms that we're trying to protect and the, the fishing activity that's taking place. There's also what I would call an ocean genetic revolution. Uh, this is particularly true on coral reefs. Uh, for corals, it's the organism that I have spent my uh, lifetime studying. And there's been a big effort now to understand the genetics of what makes some corals very sensitive to global warming and others uh, much more vulnerable. And using that genetic information to try to breed corals that will be more likely to survive in the future uh, warmer ocean. And this is called assisted evolution and has gone quite a long way since it was first began uh, less than a decade ago. There's, of course, also what I would call the ocean energy revolution. All through uh, Europe, this is really coming to fruition. And here in Maine, where I live, we're starting to have our first uh, wind energy. And of course, uh, there are other kinds of ocean energy as well, tidal uh, mechanisms to capture energy and, and currents and other things. But wind, of course, is the one that's clearly the farthest along. And then there's the ocean financial revolution, new ways of bringing money to bear to solve these big problems, which we need. So on the left, you see uh, a story about uh, the role of new insurance mechanisms. This was a, these were coral reefs in Mexico that were actually sh insured against hurricane damage. And when a hurricane occurred, the payout from the insurance covered the cost of paying local people to go underwater and uh, repair the damage. 
And then on the right, you see uh, the work being done uh, by the, these both projects are actually being done by the Nature Conservancy and their partners in the Seychelles, a major financing effort called Blue Bonds, which is basically a debt for nature kind of swap, which allows the Seychelles to put more money into protecting and sustaining their marine resources. And then perhaps most important, I think, in the future is what I would call the ocean human revolution. And for a long time, people thought of ocean ecosystems as apart from people, and we would protect them as professional conservationists, but we weren't really paying much attention to the people who are right there on the front lines. And this is really starting to change. Here are two early examples. Uh, on the left, you see Chilean harvesters of something called the Chilean abalone. It's actually a snail, not an abalone, but it's very tasty like abalones, which is why it has its name. And these communities have gotten together in cooperatives to organize for themselves how much fishing they can do, how much harvesting they can do of these, these shellfish in a way that has turned out to be much more effective than anything that could have been done in a top-down fashion by the government. And similarly, on the right, you see an example of a national park, Cabo Pulmo National Park, which was created by a small, impoverished fishing village uh, in Baja California in Mexico. And uh, the result has been the, one of the most successful marine protected areas anywhere in the world. Again, uh, the idea of and run by local people. And increasingly, we're seeing that this connection of people and humans and the, and the success that local people can have in restoring and sustainably managing their marine resources is really impressive. And so that's a very important revolution that's occurred. Finally, uh, I'd like to mention that this is, in fact, the United Nations Decade of Ocean Science. And it's the United Nations Decade of Ocean Science for Sustainable Development. And the tagline is the science we need for the ocean we want. This is really new. Most ocean decades for research have been strictly about research. And this ties back into what I was just saying, the people connection, figuring out what people need from their ocean and using that to guide scientific research. So with that, um, I'd like to sh share this final message if the problems seem bigger than the solutions uh, to you, and they are big, I'm not denying that, don't give up, scale up. And I hope this talk has given you some ideas about some of the many places where efforts are being made, but more effort could be needed. And then finally, for more information, I encourage you on Twitter, you can look for hashtag ocean optimism to flag story of success and two major reviews of ocean conservation successes which were published in the last uh, year or two by Duarte, the one I mentioned, and also one I wrote in 2021 called Ocean Optimism, Moving Beyond the Obituaries. Thank you very much. My talk, We Alone, How Humans Have Conquered the Planet and Can Also Save It, is the title of a book I published a year ago, exploring where the bizarre urge to conserve other species came from and how we can rally global collaboration to save the planet. I want to start by dispelling the view that conservation is a modern invention of the West. I will show instead that conservation is a truly ancient and universal feature of all societies which learn to live within ecosystem limits. These universal lessons offer hope for living within planetary limits too. So how does conservation feature in our rise to global conquest? What evolutionary quirks made us so super dominant? And how can we redirect those skills to save our planet? Darwin's mentor, Charles Lyell, wrote in The Principles of Geology in 1833 that in conquering the Earth, we diminish and exterminate other species 
in obedience to the general laws of nature, and he adds, largely beyond our control. Lyle was right about exterminating other species. We and our livestock now exceed 90% of all vertebrate biomass, up from less than a half percent in the Pleistocene. He was wrong about the rules of nature being beyond our control, though. At the very peak of our conquest, we've broken nature's rules by saving even the most threatening of species, the elephant, lion, wolf, and bear. Conserving species that endanger and compete with us is an evolutionary paradox when you think about it. Yet, I show that paradox can be explained by tracking the evolution and the diversification of conservation, from storing food and water for survival, to husbanding domestic plants and animals, pollution control, and still in the making, saving other species and protecting the planet from our excesses. Conservation has steadily widened and deepened from our ecological emancipation from Charles Lyell's laws and with our growing worldly knowledge and sensibilities in the global age. Today, we conserve things as diverse as the Colosseum, the Mona Lisa, the Grand Canyon, and even cultural traditions such as Thanksgiving and Memorial Day, along with domestic breeds of animals and plants, biodiversity, ecosystem processes, and so on. In other words, conservation has come to include anything we value and wish to spare against the ravages of time. Richard Dawkins, that ardent proponent of the selfish gene, made an exception when it came to us. He said, imagining and planning for the long term is a new evolutionary invention. The future exists only in the human mind. So in our case, we're entitled to throw out Darwinism. David Sloan Wilson goes further to say, we now live in a post-selfish gene age. The common good and altruism are the very hallmark of our success. Saving other species is the highest form of altruism, beyond self, kin, tribe, nation, and even humanity itself. After all, we've set aside over 20% of our lands for wildlife and struck international agreements to conserve biodiversity and, and curb greenhouse gases. We are presiding over a tumultuous ecological transition from the Holocene to the Anthropocene with the unrivaled power to destroy, conserve, and resurrect species, and even create new forms of life. How can we use that power to scale up from our scattered successes in curbing pollution and saving species on a local scale to saving the planet? I was fortunate to grow up in the savannas where conserving food and water for hard times was so ingrained in traditional societies that I wondered if conservation lay deep in our evolutionary history too. I found ample evidence in studying how Maasai pastoralists in Amboseli coexist with wildlife and survive droughts far better. Herders shadowing wildlife migrants through the season displace them from the best pastures and conserve fodder for the dry seasons. Surfing the green waves of pasture across the landscape raises herd production and coupled with conserving dry season pastures limits drought losses. Incidentally, I have a disclosure. The Maasai gave me cattle, urging me to see Amboseli through the eyes of a cow from their perspective. Needless to say, I raised more than a few eyebrows about my scientific detachment and wildlife credentials in driving cattle through a game reserve. 
Yet, seeing Abbasili as the Maasai do, showed me how culture, cooperation, and reciprocal ties among herders led to the ecological success in the wildlife-rich savannas where we evolved. Their reciprocity extends to the highest level of altruism, what they call a sattva, meaning the generosity of giving cattle to those down on their luck with no expectations of return. Interestingly, the Maasai have no word for conservation. Instead, Eramatri captures the far deeper ethos of a family's welfare being tied to the success of their herds, the health of the land, and the entire Maasai community, and even to wildlife. Wildlife is second cattle to the Maasai, conserved and used in hard times to combat starvation. Ellen Ostrom won the Nobel Prize for Economics in showing the success of all societies, sharing common resources, whether pastures, fisheries, or even public utilities such as parking lots and airwaves, depends on common rules governing use and responsibility. Ostrom sees these time-tested universal rules as the best hope for managing the global commons too, but only if we can reach across tribal, ethnic, and national boundaries to engender our caring and sharing nature. The standard explanation for our ecological success is bipedalism, tools, and a big brain. Yes, these are key elements of our success, but they're far from the whole human story. After all, chimps share these same traits as us, and baboons none of them. And yet, baboons are far more successful than chimps, numbering second only to us among Africans' large mammals. I see our success instead in breaking evolutionary and biological straitjackets, constricting other species. From our first bipedal steps, we went on to unhitch anatomical, physiological, and metabolic constraints, to break brain-to-body scaling laws, develop highly efficient neuronal networks, and marshal the use of fire. It is the interlocking suite of changes, not any one of them, that made us an all-purpose species, able to walk and run far, store food and water, and so breach ecological and ecosystem barriers. And in addition, hurl tools with accuracy and explosive velocity, upscale prey size, render down indigestible plants, and combat large predators. Above all, it was our expansion of cooperation beyond kinship networks to form larger bonded groups able to divide tasks and achieve greater foraging and reproductive efficiency that really set us apart from other species. Larger bonded groups allowed us to plan, hunt, and forage collectively, to share and increase the spoils among members, and so outsmart and outcompete smaller groups constrained by kinship ties. Such returns to scale, as economists call it, shifted evolution from competing with other species to competing with other human bands. So creating selection for group cooperation, cultural adaptation, planning, and the common good. Intergroup competition set the stage for proception. That is, allowing us to look ahead, anticipate hard times, and conserve resources collectively, as the Maasai do. In We Alone, How Humans Have Conquered the Planet and Can Also Save It, I concur with Joseph Heinrich in his book. 
the secret of our success. We crossed a Rubicon two million years ago when culture rather than biology became the driving engine of the evolution. Cultural adaptations allowed us to break Shelford's law of tolerance, the environmental constraints restricting the distribution of plants and animals. In doing so, we became the ultimate multi-niche free-ranging species, able to break geographical barriers and conquer the world. Freed from the narrow niches of other species, Homo erectus and later Homo sapiens became intercontinental travelers during the Pleistocene, though far fewer yet than the bison and elephant. We finally broke the constraints of hunter-gatherer bands and arose to ecological dominance in the Neolithic, and this by domesticating plants and animals and re-engineering the landscape. Populations soared from 6 to 150 million 3,000 years ago, triggering permanent settlements, surplus food production, and trade and commodity exchanges. A diversity of husbandry practices sprang up, spawning our extraordinary richness of livelihoods, languages, and cultures. Robert Wright sees these newly emerging civilizations as experiments in living within the limits of food supply and environment and ramping up the benefits of ecological and economic scale from ecosystem to regional levels. Despite the rising human temper, the Malthusian trap of food supply curbing population growth and prosperity largely persisted until the Industrial Revolution. Then, in just two centuries, we finally broke yet another ecological barrier, Liebig's Law of the Minimum, which states that populations are limited by the nutrient in shorter supply. By harnessing fossil fuels and manufacturing fertilizers, pesticides, tractors, and combined harvesters, we were emancipated, emancipated from the natural productivity of the land, from reproduction, location, and even seasons. Population surged to 7 billion by the 20th century, causing mass migrations from farm to city. In the process, we became a super-dominant species, creating a new ecological age, the Anthropocene. On the downside, severing the intimate aromatry links between family, food production, consumption, and community weakened those ecological and social feedbacks between our actions and consequences. The massive surge in resource use and waste production has transformed natural biomes like the American prairies to agro-industrial landscapes overriding the natural forces governing the atmosphere, lithosphere, and biosphere. Our outsized destructive footprint has created a global tragedy of the commons beyond our ambit of awareness, feelings, and even caring, and far beyond national jurisdictions and classical economic accounting. I like the quote from Kenneth Balding, an economist himself, who cautioned anyone who believes in indefinite growth on a physically finite planet is either mad or an economist. Sadly, we can no longer use the natural connections, bonding, ancestral, close-knit communities to live within Earth's physical and biological limits in today's world. What we can and must do, though, is use unnatural reconnections to harness technologies that expand our sensory and emotional reach to give us the foresight and skills to plan the world we want rather than inherit from Lyle's law of nature. This means deploying satellites to map and monitor the biosphere and using the Internet of Things, artificial intelligence, 
smartphones and the social media to close the yawning information and economic gap both within and between nations. We must also adopt a circular economy and renewable energy sources to increase resource efficiency and reduce emissions. Above all, we must account for the services nature provides us and the damage we cause nature. This calls for replacing land-hungry destructive industrial farming with microbial-grown meat and cereal products which spare land for biodiversity and alleviate animal suffering. In We Alone, I stress that we do have the tools, the knowledge and governance rules and the compassion to husband the earth if we deploy the unique capacity for foresight, cooperation and conserving other species that made us so distinctive and successful. Modernity has enabled us to climb the conservation ladder from the lower rungs of survival to the higher rungs of saving species and our environment. We're not yet on the top rung though. COVID and global warming have woken us to the folly of myopic self-interest and the need for cooperation to avert global crises. Detecting and shrinking the ozone hole, saving whales and savoring our natural and cultural heritage shows us we can rise to the top rung of conservation action. By the end of the 21st century, we shall have passed peak population and materialism. Cities are humankind's most distinctive creation and our new habitat. As in ancestral hunter-gatherer bands, cities show the same returns to scale social benefits, economic output, scientific innovations, technical skills, and energy efficiency all increase at greater than parity with city size. The sheer concentration of knowledge, skills, cultural diversity, and pluralistic values in our cities birthed the modern conservation movement. Why? Because here we suffered most from the consequences of our actions in the polluted air and poisoned rivers of our throwaway society. For better or worse, cities where three quarters of us will live by 2050 will define our future and the fate of the planet. I want to show two contrasting views of Ambicelli to ask whether our super dominance will destroy nature or whether our bizarre evolutionary quirk in conserving other species will save it. This is an image of Africa as the tourist sees it in a national park the last of the wilds where the great herds still survive and our human footprint is barely visible. The second photo is Amboseli as the Maasai see it, their ancestral home where wildlife is incidental to their livestock. Here where humankind emerged some 350,000 years ago, we have long been the dominant ecological force shaping the savannas. We have followed Lyle's law to an extreme in displacing and exterminating other species. There's no doubt about that. But as Ambicelli shows, we have and can conserve other species in defiance of Lyle's law. Now imagine if elephants became as superdominant as us ecologically. They would number a staggering 100 billion and decimate the world's woodlands and forests. So we should take heart that among all species that may have conquered the planet, we alone have the sentience, knowledge, and capacity to make the new epoch, the Anthropocene, a fitting world for our own descendants and for all life.
Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.